welcome back to Old Soul Podcast. My name is Brie, that's spelled B-R-E-I. Thank you so much. Today's film discussion is over the film titled In the Mood for Love, directed by Wong Kar Wai. It is rated PG. It is an hour and 38 minutes long, and it was released in the year of 2000. The director, Wong Kar Wai, is pretty well known as a Hong Kong director. Uh, this film itself is based in the 1960s, I believe, late 1960s, so like 1968, um, in the setting of Hong Kong. Um, but Wong Kar Wai, as a director, is known for his Hong Kong style and his intricate aesthetic. I know from behind the scenes, Wong Kar Wai has a very specific way that he directs his stories with his actors. There seems to be quite a bit of improving, kind of you show up on set and we see where we go. Other times it's most likely pretty intentional with other methods in his directing style, but that's what I've heard and what I've seen from some clips of behind the scenes from this particular film and others that he's done. My favorite films that are directed by Wong Kar Wai are Happy Together, which Tony, the name of one of these lead actors, he is also in Happy Together and he's also in In the Mood for Love. You'll find that Wong Kar Wai does tend to use some of his actors consistently, which isn't really strange for directors, especially if they have a good connection with certain actors or actresses. I just thought that was interesting to note. So Happy Together is another film by Wong Kar Wai, along with In the Mood for Love, but there are quite a few others that are, you know, more popular or other people prefer. I've heard in the past that uh, American directors like Tarantino has been inspired by Wong Kar Wai films. I have a lot to say about Tarantino just in general, although I do like some of his films in general. Eh, there's some iffy things about Tarantino, but that's something for another day if I ever do a Tarantino film. Ultimately, Wong Kar Wai is an incredible director. I definitely think you should look up his, you know, discography and just see some other films that he's directed, see if you like them. I will note for this film, just to start with saying that In the Mood for Love is a slow burn for me, and I do think a lot of people would agree that the pacing for this film is rather slow, even though it's only an hour and 30 minutes and most movies are at least two hours max with the runtime, so it is actually short for a film, but it feels rather long, and I don't want to say that that's a bad thing or a good thing, it's just you notice the pacing is rather slow and the film feels a lot more like a poem than anything else. It feels like it's, you know, telling you a story. Sometimes it feels like it's a cut of a documentary, not in the way that it's filmed, but just in the way that it feels, in the way that it's paced. And I just think that it's better to let people know what they're getting themselves into when they watch a film, sort of like the way that a trailer lets you know with short clippets and snips. So that if you do decide, hey, I kind of liked your commentary about this, I want to watch this, you can be prepared for the very slow burn. Do I think that the slow burn, you know, earns its weight? Definitely. Definitely, definitely, just with some of the twists and turns that happen in the movie. But ultimately, it's, it's a slow one. It's a slow one. So let's get back to the movie. Okay, IMDb's summary of this film 
two neighbors form a strong bond after both suspect extramarital activities of their spouses. However, they agree to keep their bond platonic so as not to commit similar wrongs. The two main actors and really the, on the only actors you really see a lot of outside of the side characters are Tony and Maggie. I don't want to butcher their names that are listed in the film and yes I watched this film with subtitles. I don't know if they're speaking Chinese or Mandarin or some other slang that was said in the 60s. I, I don't know all those details. Ultimately I'm saying I'm going to refer to them as Tony as the main male lead and Maggie as the main female lead character, but those are not the names that were listed in the film. Those are just the names that I can s pronounce correctly and I won't get confused when I'm speaking to you about the commentary in terms of this film, but those are not the names that were listed in the film, obviously. IMDb has that listed. If you search in the mood for love, you can see what their actual names were. I just really don't want to butcher the pronunciation and that's the only reason why as a way to be as respectful as I can be to the actors and to Wong Kar Wai. So, it does look like Wong Kar Wai also wrote this film, so that's really cool. He does seem to have a lot of creative liberties with his films, and I know some people are like, oh, well, duh, he directed it. But, you know, some directors don't write the screenplays, don't produce it, don't do all that other stuff. Wong Kar Wai definitely had a lot of you know, his ideas and thoughts and everything into this beyond just being a director. Okay, so what am I going to talk about today? Let's just start from the beginning. If you hear like the click of my phone or my laptop, it's just because I'm looking at my notes per usual, nothing new. Let's start with the beginning. So again, this is set in 1960s in Hong Kong, and it starts with the setting of this apartment complex, basically, and Tony has just inquired about a lease from an available unit, and he has just left the apartment, so this is like the beginning, and then Maggie comes in looking for an apartment as well. You know, the lady, she's probably the owner of the building or otherwise the landlord, says, hey, someone just came in, but if you're still looking for a room, I do have another room that you can take a look at. Ultimately, that's how the characters end up meeting each other. They both move into this apartment complex around the same time. Both of the main characters are married. So the male lead is married and the female lead is married. The male lead seems to be a journalist of some sort. It looks like he works at some sort of newsroom or something some office that's listed and then Maggie appears to be a secretary or a form of an assistant and in the beginning we are very much thrusted into the world of intimate aesthetic that's what I'm gonna say about it that's how I felt about it so I did note before that it felt like a poem the film has a lot of moments where the lighting is very much like a, an aura there's lots of reds there's beautiful dresses that Maggie is wearing. They look traditional, um, but I don't know, you know, the specifics of that. I just thought that it's, the dresses were very intricate and she's giving you a look with every scene. Her hair is in 
perfect, you know, perfectly settled on her head. It could be because she's a secretary and assistant. There's probably a certain level of appearance that you have to have. It could be because she's a woman in the 60s. A lot of things with that. But I just think it's worth noting how her entire wardrobe is an aesthetic alone outside of just the beauty of the film. So I feel like you really grasp onto the lack of dialogue and then the cuts to lots of dialogue with shot reversal shots, intimate frames where you genuinely feel like you are in the film and you're turning the corner of those alleyways, those dark alleyways. The rain is almost like a third main character in the film. The music feels like it's its own character in the film in the way that it'll cut all dialogue, cut all sound, and there will just be this jarring amount of music. Sometimes it's just an instrumental, other times you know, there's music that comes on, and I believe it's in Spanish, which is different. You know, the use of different languages in a film doesn't seem to happen too often. Uh, it's very different. It fits the hue aura of the red. It's very known in the way that it cuts in. That's all I'll say. And sometimes... I felt like when I was watching this film that I was a third wheel watching this film because like I said it feels like you're in it you're turning the corners of the stairs you're in these tight tight apartments uh, you get these moments where the other residents that live in the apartment you know it seems that Maggie and Tony are quite young maybe late 20s mid 20s early 30s and they're married and their spouses are hardly ever depicted in the film like you hear them on the phone, you hear them having conversations with their spouses, and you see like side profiles or the back of the spouses. Uh, there are a lot of frames where someone's taking up a lot of the frame and the other person is just in the corner, either in focus, out of focus. They're both in focus, but you only see someone's one person's face. Or again, they'll do a shot reversal when they're framed at the dining booths. There's a scene where they're in the dining booth and they're talking in a restaurant which is a pretty climactic scene that I'll go back to. There are moments where we see a hand grabbing you know the stairwell banister or lingering on the wall. You almost feel like you can be there filling that banister and smelling that place like you the way that it's framed it doesn't feel like we are doing typical Hollywood of First act, second act, third act, boom. A very basic, simple frame. It feels very much like the camera's not a shaky handheld, but it feels like someone's intimately there holding on and very, very zoomed in to a lot of the shots. Even so, there does feel like there's a very specific way that they decided to frame the film. So I love the scenes when the actors are in the car together Tony and Maggie and you see them in the car and then you see the out the frame of the window and then the outer parts of the car except it's not zoomed out enough that you can see like the tires and the road which is what a usual shot would probably look like it's a lot more zoomed in and it's very pretty it's very aesthetically pleasing and it's very very particular you can tell I noticed that there are a lot of shots of seeing cigarette smoke, which feels very noir. It's such a noir thing to see them focus on smoke streaming in the air. <laughs> and it would make sense for the 60s for people to be actively smoking 
It does focus in on cigarettes a lot of the time. The smoke just looks really pretty in certain lighting and I just think it's worth noting because it looks great on screen. What else looks really good? Oh, I noticed that there are a lot of frames of us looking at a reflection of the character versus just looking at the character. I don't know why that was a focus, a frame within a frame for One Car Y, but it was happening a lot and so I'll probably have a photo of an example of that. It's just, it seems like we had a lot of reflections of people. Maybe there's some other metaphoric or symbolism in that. And what else should I note? Hmm. Okay, so that's enough about the aesthetics. Now, going back to the story, I gave a quote about what IMDb summarized this film as. And I just want to note that this film is a sad slow burn. So not only do these two main characters find out that their spouses are cheating on them, but, and I didn't notice this the first time, first time I saw this film, I've seen this film probably three times, and I didn't notice, probably because I was focused on everything but the story, <laughs> that the two main characters, you know, they find out that their spouses are having an affair. But what I didn't realize, based off of the intricate dialogue and the back and forth, is that their two spouses are having an affair with each other. So not only do they find out that the people that they're married to and essentially seem to love are cheating on them, but they find out that those people are also cheating with each other's spouses. Mind blown. I did not catch that the first time I saw this film. How could I not catch that? Well, I think there are several reasons why. Like I said, aesthetically, this film is doing a lot with visuals. A lot of the time there isn't a lot of dialogue, it's just music. A lot of the time there is a lot of dialogue, and when the film is set in a language that's probably not your first language. I mean, even when you see a film the first time, you're not going to notice everything. But when you have to focus on aesthetic versus dialogue, I will always focus on aesthetic first. I will always focus on cinematography first. So I think, you know, I've gotten really good at reading subtitles just in like the past few years that I've been watching films in other, you know, countries and other parts of the world. But it's just something that I did not notice how, I have no idea. Anyway, just thought that was worth noting. And that's like the big twist of the film. So they don't know each other, and then the main characters. They don't know each other, then eventually they start running into each other making casual conversation. Maggie's husband travels a lot for work. The other, you know, Tony's wife, I don't really know what she does. Uh, and I don't think it really matters. We don't really get enough of them for it to matter, we just know that they're kind of like these beings that are faceless, but they have voices, which is really interesting. Usually when directors make the choice to make their actors faceless, they are just like, they're good in the sense that they're there for the plot and they press, you know, excel and advance the plot, but to still give them voices, is very particular, especially because there are a lot of scenes where the phone is involved. A lot of very close shot, 
maybe a mid close-up, maybe an extreme close-up, not a lot of them, but there's quite a few close-ups, and they're on the phone, and they're just talking, or they're not talking at all, or they're looking out of a window, or it's raining, almost like a symbolistic way of showing their sadness. Either way, these two end up building a bond and a friendship slowly but surely, not only with their community, you know, the older men and women there, they have a lot of energy, they gossip, they're fun to see in the film, and then we see the other two who seem more reserved, seem to be missing their spouses. They form a friendship from light conversation, but mostly they bond over the fact that they're both being cheated on, which is just fucked up in every possible way. I'm gonna note now that my opinion about cheating is that it's not okay. It's never okay. I don't care what excuses anybody has. I don't care if it's a man cheating or a woman cheating. It's all bad. It's all wrong. Ultimately, what I think is that it's easier said than done to just get a divorce. Divorce can be very messy. It can be very expensive if you have children or, you know, large assets involved. It makes it even more difficult. I was not a child of divorce, but I knew people who were children of divorce and I saw how that took a toll on them. But that doesn't mean you stay in a household that's abusive because that can also turn into something very, very bad very quickly, like a domino effect. I feel like if you are, you know, in a relationship that is considered monogamous and you decide that you don't want to be with your spouse anymore, you get a separation and figure out what the fuck you want, make sure you guys are on the right, the same terms. You go to therapy if you're still willing to work it out. You get a divorce. You do the right thing, the moral thing. If you get into a relationship where you guys have agreed upon monogamy, there is no reason for you to cheat. If you're not happy with something, speak up. Find a solution. There are marriages out there where they're not monogamous. It's not cheating if they both know that it's happening and they've agreed upon it. There are marriages where they know that it's happening and they still don't like it because it wasn't agreed upon. There's a difference. I don't think there's any excuse for it. We're in 2022. It's harmful, it's hurtful, and it doesn't need to happen. Communicate. So that's my stance on that. And that's what's so heart-wrenching about the film. And you know, this is the 60s. I do feel like this is a whole other conversation for the set time frame. Because wow, you know, the main character, Tony, you know, he won't get shamed for, I mean, this isn't America, so I don't really know. It probably is even more um, restrictive, not only because it's in the 60s, but you know, other countries have different ideas about divorce. And usually they're not good things, and especially if you're religious. But I do think a man who is divorced would not be, you know, ridiculed in the same way that a woman would be, which I think, you know, right? Even if they're considering it at all, they probably aren't. Either way, yeah. So they end up bonding over the fact that their spouses are cheating on them. And they start noticing the signs, right? So, you know, my wife said she was going to be here, but she wasn't there. You know, she's lying about these small details. You know, my husband's taking another trip today. 
And then they start noticing, oh, well, that person's wife is also doing this and that person's husband's also doing this. So they casually ask each other about their spouses. They make it seem like, oh, just having casual conversation. Really, they're trying to narrow down what's going on with their own cheating spouse. Eventually, they end up at this diner together and they talk in circles and we see the shot reversal. And then I believe that Maggie brings up something about his tie and then he brings up something about her purse because he recognizes that purse and he knows, he, he asks like, oh, I want to get a gift for my wife. Does that purse come in another color? But really he's asking, where do you get that purse? My wife has the same purse and I didn't buy it from her. And I asked you, you know, are there other colors? And you said, oh, it came from overseas. My husband got it from overseas. Red flag. Glaring red flag. So ultimately, they find out that their spouses, they already had a clue, right? But they are openly talking about the secret to each other. Now they're both on the same playing field. They're no longer talking in circles. So she sort of admits first, actually, you know, in one, in one way or another, she's saying, I only asked you about the tie because I know that my husband has that tie and I didn't get it for him. And he's like, I only asked you about the purse because my wife has that purse and I didn't get it for her. And I, none of us work overseas over here. Like, what, what's going on? You know, at least not right now. So that's an interesting way to find out that your spouse is cheating on you with a neighbor. <laughs> How fucking terrible. And so they have a lot of late night car rides together. They have, there's one instance where he asks her like, oh, can you help me? I'm, I'm thinking of writing some, a martial arts story. And she's really into like those types of stories. And I guess he wants her opinion about it. And I think they secretly just like being in each other's presence. She like goes over to his apartment and then ends up not being able to leave and staying like overnight. Nothing happens physically. Um, more intimately, they just don't want the gossip to start if everybody else sees her leave his room. Ooh, drama. Okay. And some other things that happen there. And they have a lot of car rides together. They go to like this food stand a lot to get noodles, which seems to be just like a normal thing. Probably just like a street vendor or something. There's just a lot of scenes cut into them going to get noodles and from the street vendor and it, it's almost always raining. I don't know if it's just a rainy season there or what. And they always get caught in the rain. They always have conversation. And it just progresses. And to some point they're meeting at like a hotel because it's safer, I guess. And again, they never actually cross the boundaries of intimate physical touch. And cheating but I do think it should be noted that cheating can also be emotional and I know a lot of people don't agree with that I do feel like there are levels to relationships like you can definitely have relationships with people that are the same sex if you you know you can find someone attractive and not actually want to sleep with them I think that's very possible like you can acknowledge like oh this person is really attractive but they're not my type you know uh, there's levels to that and always always controversies to things like that but I do think that emotionally they've already abandoned their spouses and rightfully so right their spouses are lying to them and cheating on them 
but they're not taking an active stance to leave them, at least not in the beginning. And you do see that Tony has at some point decided, and I assume that he has decided to leave his wife. I don't know that it's as cut and dry as that and it doesn't really get into those details, but he seems to have accepted that his marriage is like kind of over, whereas Maggie eventually doesn't ever decide that. You'll see later that she decides to stay with her husband and they even end up having a kid. So that's what happens ultimately. But they get to a point where they've acknowledged that they actually do feel more than friendship for each other, but they never act on it physically. But I do think emotionally they're already detached and long, long past their marriages at this point. And I do feel like you do owe it to yourself as well as your spouse to be honest about your feelings. And I do personally feel like your feelings are the first thing to go when you're done with a relationship, whether that's, you know, a lover sort of relationship or a friendship. I always feel like the emotion and the mental state is long gone before the physical part. And that sounds a little, you know, like a juxtaposition, but I think there's some truth to it, honestly. Especially, um, depending on someone who's more emotionally invested as a person in general, but okay. So, nothing ever happens. They even agree at some point that like, we're not going to be like our spouses. And it does get cut off. Eventually, they have like these phone calls to each other where they're not really saying anything at all. We see cuts to Maggie crying her heart out in the shower. Again, the water, the reference to water in the shower, her cries probably wouldn't be as heard as bad and she can cry and it could just look like water when she comes out so it won't look as bad and we see a few times where they practice with each other how they're going to confront their spouses and there's a scene where Maggie you know slaps Tony pretending that it's her husband and then she goes and practices again. He's like, it's okay, you've got this, just do it again. And then she just starts crumbling, like she just cries her heart out. And it's such a heart-wrenching scene, it makes me so mad for her. And you can just see how hurt she is amongst the mundaneness and the routine of work and being a wife and being home on top of the already enormous terrors of the world. And now she has to deal with the fact that her spouse is cheating. And Tony seems to have another outlet outside of crying where he kind of jokes with this friend who shows up in the film sort of as dark humor and comic relief. And even his friend is sort of saying, hey, I saw your wife somewhere with this guy. I'm just letting you know. I don't know what it's about, but I thought I should let you know, you know. That seems to be his sort of release outside of talking to Maggie and holding it in. It's just so hauntingly sad and mundane and poetic and visually pleasing. And in the end, like I said, they don't end up together, even though I do wish that they would have just in the right ways, you know, like getting a divorce. It's not surprising that it ended that way, and I feel like if it had ended any other way, it probably wouldn't have been very realistic in the 60s. And you can see that they have a lot of regrets, you know, years later. And 
they kept each other's secret essentially. I don't know what happened between Tony and his wife, but I do believe that they probably got a divorce. Maggie, however, you know, went on to have a kid. You know, did the cheating stop? I doubt it. If someone cheats once, they'll definitely do it again. And, you know, I do think that people who stay in relationships where they get cheated on probably say that we've moved on, you know, whether that's because they communicate better or they went to therapy or whatever. But I do feel like once trust has been broken, you never truly can put it back together with someone. You can put it back together with someone new because there's no history of them hurting you. But that doesn't mean you can put it back together with someone that's already hurt you. It doesn't matter how many times they apologize. It doesn't matter how sorry they say they are. I don't think it's as simple as that. And I don't think a lot of people would admit that. But I, I think it's true. And, you know, maybe some people have had success stories, and that's great for them, but I don't think that sort of trust can ever come back. Not really, anyway. Not in the same way. Okay. So there are probably a lot of other things I wanted to mention. <clears throat> but, you know, there's a lot of low-key lighting, shadows, frames within the frames. I talked about the cigarette smoke of noir, aesthetic, the mirrors... The reflections, the feeling of portrayal and other, you know, heart-wrenching, you know, feelings, loneliness, the double-edged sword of not only being cheated on, but being cheated on with a neighbor's spouse, and building a friendship and a bond from their pain, the red flags and the signs of cheating, the cuts to music, cuts to shot reversal dialogue and then there's like this final scene where Tony's in Cambodia it looks like he might be an older temple there and again he's a journalist so he's probably either he moved there or years later or he's traveling there for a story but he brings up a reference and I'm going to find that in my notes app Okay, so he's talking to his friend Aping, the guy who's sort of like comic relief, and he gives him a briefing about this story where someone went up to this hole and he set his secret into the hole and then he covered the secret, you know, that hole with mud to sort of symbolize that it's never going to get out. And I do think that's the ultimate ending of having regrets and it ending on a sad note, but it being very realistic. And now I'm going to go into my segment where I just quote things, but I'm going to start with the quote that he actually said in the film, and then I'll follow it up with, you know, other quotes. So. They went up a mountain, found a tree, carved a hole in it, and whispered the secret into the hole. Then they covered it with mud. Another quote by Tony. I thought we wouldn't be like them, but I was wrong. And that's him saying this to Maggie. And like I said, they didn't expect to fall in love with each other, but ultimately they did. 
even though no physical boundaries were broken, I think emotionally there were boundaries broken there. So did they really end up like their spouses? It's debatable, yes or no, in another way maybe. That era has passed, nothing that belonged to it exists anymore. That was quoted as a caption, I don't know who said it, maybe just like a narrator voiceover thing. Maggie, I didn't think you'd fall in love with me. Then Tony says, I didn't either. I was only curious to know how it started. Now I know. Feelings can creep up just like that. I thought I was in control. And then there's just another listed caption. He remembers those vanished years, as though looking through a dusty window pane, the past is something he could see but not touch, and everything he sees is blurred and indistinct. And that's all for In the Mood for Love. I hope that you give it a watch. It is on HBO Max right now. And have a good day. Bye.